We're back to the Neil Haley Show in the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Dina Martin, celebrity, and you have a father who was such a tremendous legacy. Uh, Dina, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Well, it's my uh, it's my pleasure, and yes, Dean Martin was unbelievable. <laughs> oh yes. So tell me the story how you wanted to be an entertainer as because of your father. Was that the reasoning for wanting to be a singer entertainer? Is what your you father know, I did? I don't yeah. know if it. Yeah. I don't know if it was because of him or if it's just in me. I was born this way, you know. I I just always wanted to sing and dance and entertain. I have to tell you, all the Martins were kind of uh, hams. But uh, there's just something about it just gives me such a pleasure. And I really and truly think it was something I was I'm meant to do. I'm just the happiest when I'm singing and dancing and entertaining people. Did Dean want you to be an entertainer or was it more you he was wanting what was best for you and seeing if it was something you like and stuff? Well, he wanted all of us to do what it, whatever it was that we wanted. But I was, you know, I was very uh, privileged in the fact that I was able to have ballet lessons and tap lessons and piano lessons and, uh, you know, get outside and play and do that. So we were encouraged to do whatever it is that we wanted to do. And it's just that I took so quickly to singing and dancing and, and acting that that's what uh, I wanted to do. It's not that he wanted to push us in any direction. My dad, he just wanted us to be happy and be good kids. <laughs> and he raised uh, seven beautiful, uh, smart, nice kids. Wow, seven kids. I have five of my own, so the house must have been oh. really crazy, wasn't it? Oh, it was crazy. Imagine each one of us having a friend over, and right there, there's 14 people oh in your house. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but everybody wanted to come to our house because uh, it was fun. And when Dad was, uh, you know, when... If he wasn't uh, working or playing golf, you know, he was home or playing tennis or uh, he was making us laugh. That's amazing. Again, we're talking to Dina Martin on the Neil Haley Show, and we're talking about Dean Martin, the legendary singer. And, you know, was he when he was traveling so much, how did you guys handle all that? Was that a challenge for you, especially when he was on the road a lot? He wasn't traveling that much. Really? You know, when we when we were little, he would do Las Vegas, uh, you know, a couple times a year. But we would go there with him because he always had, uh, you know, uh, you know, sweets there, and we would go stay with him. But uh, he was usually home making uh, making records and TV shows and movies. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he was he was home a lot. He was. Uh, he didn't like to go out. <laughs> he didn't like to go away. So you know, if he would go to uh, uh, let's say to the Fountain Blue or to Chicago or do some, you know, a show. It was never for very long. Really? You know, it's not like oh, wow. he, uh, no. He had the no, flexibility uh-uh. because of his uh, stature. He was able to do that then, stay with his family exactly. and be, a, be exactly. a great family man. Wow, that's a – and not yeah. one thinks that, right? You think about entertainers, you don't think of a family man. So talking no, about your you father's legacy in that way, it's great to hear the family man part of this. Oh, yeah, you know, home every night for dinner. Wow. If he wasn't on the road, yeah. So, you know, those were uh, some of the rules that we had in our house. And we were all we were all there. No one ever wanted to disappoint Dad. He was an Italian dad. He was, he was funny. He said, this is my house. These are my rules. And if you can't live by these rules, there's the door. I said, but, Dad, I'm only nine. He said, no, no. And he'd laugh. He'd say, rules are rules. Be home on time for dinner. 
But going down to uh, the uh, the Dean Martin show on Sundays when when he was doing that fabulous TV show yeah. and watching them was really remarkable for me. And I did the show, you know, many times. But when he um, he started doing the uh, the roasts, the Dean Martin celebrity roast, which were really fun, um, and I was there when he would do so many of those and watch them. I still watch them on TV. So that's what I'm going to be doing, uh, you know, next week, April 15th, at the South Point Casino, the Dina Martin Celebrity Roast, and the man of the hour is Joe Montaigne from oh, Criminal wow. Minds. That's so that's awesome. So every year you do this, Dina. Uh, well, more than uh, more than every year, you yeah. know. So I'm doing it. Uh, it all depends on everybody's schedules, who we're going to, who I'm going to roast. And then getting their friends to come, and we had to wait till April fifteenth for Joe because he, you know, that's when he, uh, I guess they're on break from Criminal Minds. But we have a great cast of of roasters. It's going to be so much fun. And you know, Joe Montaigne is such a nice guy. It's going to be a little difficult to roast him because he's never done anything bad in his life. Oh, geez, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, he's yeah. Huh? Wow. So you do this how many times a year? It depends. Well, I do. You know, it it all depends on what my schedule is. You know, because I'm on the road 280 days out of the year. Wow. So I'm out doing shows all over, and so it's just trying, you know, maybe four times a year, you know, I mean, that's, it's uh, it's difficult to, um, as I say, to get all the people together. Like, everybody's coming in from all over for uh, for Joe. You know, Joe Piscopo's coming yes. in from New York. Wow. Uh, Lou Martini's coming in from New York. Mike Marino is coming in from New Jersey. I'm, I can't remember where Tommy Dreesen's coming from. Probably uh, Chicago. But all of the people, um, you know, so it's it's trying to get everybody's schedules together, and um, and you know, it's just it's it's hard work. But once we're up there and we're roasting him, it's and it's really beautifully done. It's well done. The the South Point is a classy, beautiful yes uh, hotel and casino, and so that's going to be uh, wonderful. And that's where I play when I'm you know. Sometimes when I'm in Vegas, I play the showroom there or the Smith Center. But this, uh, they really know what they're doing at the South Point. So we're excited about that. And yeah. where where are you? Where I'm, are you I'm, 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 I'm out of Pittsburgh, but we are syndicating 120-plus stations and all over the world as well. So I'm, there's definitely a lot of fans of yours and also listening today or throughout the, uh, the when it goes out to syndication and also, again, about your father. So, I mean, it's just it's such a great thing yeah. to hear about and, and some, that something about roasting somebody. Tell me that process of writing those jokes, especially when you like somebody and have to roast oh, them. Oh, yeah. well, it's... it's um, it's it's difficult, but you know if you have and we, as I say, all of the Martins were, we were brought up with a, a great personality, and so it's the fun part. <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, at taking something that he he did. In fact, I might be singing that's life. Uh, you know, still haven't figured it out yet. If I'm going to be doing that's Joe, that's what all the people say. And, you know, and put words that you know he played. Let me see. Um, and then it gets to the part and I can say, he played Dino and Castro and Rocco and Carmine. Oh, you know, that's so, great. Yeah. You know, so it's it's putting those things uh, in there. And then, you know, a cute line like uh, he's, Joe Montaigne is, uh, he's a, he's so Italian. 
and he's wonderful. He has his beautiful wife, Arlene, and he has his two beautiful daughters, Mia and Gia, and, of course, 600 of his aunts and uncles and cousins living in his basement. You know, so it's cute things that uh, will just make people laugh that are so typical for Italians. But And it's not just roasting Joe, because I have to roast every single one of the uh, the roasters who gets up. Oh, wow. And many introduce them. right, and mm-hmm. many of them knew your father well, or it's, it's some. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, of course. And Tommy Dreesen, of course, who was Frank's and Uncle Frank's uh, opening act for years and years. So it's uh, it's putting people down in a, in a funny, and not putting them down, just roasting them. You know, so I don't want to give away a lot of the jokes. No, you but, don't want to. Uh, you yeah. know, for for one thing, Clifton Collins, uh, Clifton Collins uh, Jr., who is. If you if you saw him, you'd know him. He's been in I can't tell you how many movies, but his grandfather was Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez, and he was in Rio Bravo. Oh, so there's yeah. a connection there. Okay, so it's when you're when you're setting up a roast, you have to um, you have to go into the background of all of the people who are roasting because the it it, it all kind of comes together, and that's what makes it funny. Again, you know what, that his grandfather yeah, yeah. was in Rio Bravo wow. with my father. And then I can make a joke about the name Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez. You know, well, but it's like the Zsa Zsa Gabor, or you know. So it's uh, yes. it's just being clever, and not, it's going to be fun. And yeah. uh, heaven knows what people are going to say about me. You know, I mean, they always say, you know, funny things. But now, uh, since you're in Pittsburgh, so I'm also going to be on uh, April 20th in Staten Island. Okay. See, people, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my show uh, at. Uh, Lorenzo's and it's um, it's fabulous. So it's I'll have my uh, quintet with sax and all of the great songs. I have wonderful musicians and of course a lot of humor, but all the great songs and so it's a really fun show. If people are around uh, Staten Island, exactly on the twentieth, they've got to come see this show. It's great. And yeah, because everyone definitely travels at this time of year, especially when you know makes a trip out to New York City and stuff. So that's great that you brought that up, uh, Dina and. Do you ever travel to Pittsburgh? Have you performed in Pittsburgh before? Yes. Well, let me see. I have, and I think something's coming up. Uh, Pittsburgh, well, let me see. Uh, I do Philadelphia. You know, I did the Philly Pops, but I'm trying to think of the uh, theaters in Pittsburgh that I have been. But uh, if if people go to dinamartin.com and check out my website, they can click on Tours and Events. Oh wow! And so then you can see where I'm where I'm going to be, and it's a, it's a fun website, anyways. Um, but I can't remember where I'm going to be. So you, I'm sure you've stay... performed in Pittsburgh in your career for sure. Oh I, yes, I, I have. I, no, most definitely. And again, the cities and what's so great about Pittsburgh and Dina, I'm sure you know this is the fact of the cultural. Uh, of how they see music and and how the yeah. cultural district in Pittsburgh is phenomenal and their the the performances and everything and that's one of the I guess the highlights of Pittsburgh in so many ways is is that area and it, yeah it it's true and it's you know for me it's the singing this music and entertaining uh, I started uh, originally I started as uh, a country singer. You know, Lee Hazelwood is the one who approached me. He had a couple songs. He had just had that huge hit with Nancy Sinatra, These Boots Are Made For Walking. And he he called me because he had written a couple songs. Um, Girl of the Month Club and, uh, gosh, When He Remembers Me. So we went in and we recorded those. So they were country. So then I went to Nashville and did uh, Music City USA. Um, I got into 
rock and roll after that. Oh, wow. I had a, a rock and roll group, and we were called the Chromium Plated Streamline Baby, and we went all over and played the whiskey. But once my dad passed away, I wanted to, I was listening to his music just so I could hear his gorgeous voice. And I thought, my God, there's so many fabulous songs. And I thought, you know what, I should be uh, I should be singing a lot of these songs that he did. And it just, you know, I just took to it. Because with the Great American Songbook and all those fabulous yes, songs that definitely. I did, and the, you know, Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and, uh, you know, Rogers and Hart, yeah. Sammy Kahn, who was a friend of ours, I just started singing this music. And, you know, so I do symphony dates or a big band or, you know, or I'll just be with my, um, with my quintet or even a trio. But it's just something that's in me. I love the music. I love uh, the tradition and carrying it on. And when people come to my show, I bring back memories for them that's, uh, you know, spectacular and make new memories for them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's so great, Dina. And then you bring up. Uh, stories about your father, and I can imagine the stories at the roast after the roast is over when you guys are eating, <laughs> drinking. Yeah. Oh, the stories about your father, stories about you when you were little. I mean, I could just imagine. Yeah. And so that's again, yeah, that, it's, yeah. It, it's going to be fun, and also getting to know all of the the people. Um, you know, the the night before when we have a cast party dinner, and so you know where I can warn everybody. You know that <laughs> it's it's all in good fun. So, and, uh, you know, so that's fun. And then the, the party after is just, is just great. When you, after you've finished a, a great show, it's always fun to hang out with, uh, with the other actors and just, you know, your experience, talk about your experiences and, and finding out about, you know, their, their family. But Joe Montaigne, what a doll. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Again, he so, really is, you know, yeah. he played my father in the Rat Pack movie. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Wow. And yeah, everyone... he played Dean, yeah. he played Dean Martin. And everyone so needs to go couple. for sure. Hmm? And I was going to say everyone needs to go to dinamartin.com right now, and that's where they can purchase tickets. Right, right now. Yes, and it's Dean D E A N A. It's just Dean with an A. Dinamartin.com. Awesome. Well, continue your father's legacy. You're you're a delight. A New York Times bestselling author as well as I'm reading right now. And uh, you're welcome back again when you're promoting something else. So I, I, I definitely have your team's uh, information. So reach out to me anytime you're traveling or want to tell about another one of your projects going on because I you're a delight and I'd love to chat with you again. All right. Well, thank you very much. And have you know people should be buying my music and and they should read the book. Memories are made of this. Dean Martin through his daughter's eyes. We're making it into a movie. So, wow. uh, you know, tell him to get on that. Uh, you know, you can get it from Amazon or from me, and I can uh, I can autograph it. But uh, go on to dinamartin.com and and see all the all the music and all the all the good stuff that we have there. And thank you for doing this. Thank you for uh, your radio show and the internet and everything that you do. All right. all right, my dear. All right, thanks, Dina. Take care. All right, thank you, Neil. You're uh, welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening bye. to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show in the Total Celebrity segment. Oh, yes, and I'm excited to welcome the program. I think if we talk about a show that involves family life and something that was back in the days of television when television was really safe in certain ways, I'm excited to welcome the program. Judy Norton, a.k.a. Mary Ellen on the Waltons. Judy, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> so, think about thinking about your fondest experiences being on the Waltons as a child actor. Tell us that. Oh, it was um, really the cast that I got to work with. I mean, we are—we really are like family. 
um, to this day. So uh, getting to know all of those people and and building those you know lifelong relationships, I think, was the best part of it. And and because there were a lot of us, um, particularly when we were young, you know, the kids kind of. Yeah. Uh, you know, we hung together on set, off set, and, you know, so there was just, it was fun. We were working hard, but, you know, we, we just had a lot of fun. There was a lot of love on that set. How much of a mentor were you to the other kid, other child actors? Judy? Oh, none. <laughs> none, none, not really? Okay. Well, then... um, none, no, no. Um, we kind of all grew up together, and um, uh, amongst us, I, there really wasn't, you know, growing up really any kind of a leader. I mean, I think that we were more maybe mentored or, or impacted in, in each in our individual ways by, you know, Will Gear, by Ellen Corby, by, you know, Michael Learned, Ralph Waite, Richard Thomas, you know. Um, and then, you know, some of the fabulous directors we worked with and, you know, uh, guest actors that came through. So um, it was kind of... Uh, just a wonderful environment to to be a part of. Interesting. And would you say, how did you kind of, did you get a lot of help in transitioning as a child actor after the Waltons? Tell us what happened after that for our listeners out there. I know you were in a lot of different films and different things like that, but explain what happened after your uh, career with the Waltons. Uh, Well, I was already into my early 20s by then, so fortunately the show had allowed us to sort of make that transition during the course of the series. Uh, so when I came off the series, um, I, I went back to my roots. You know, I had started in theater as, mm-hmm. as a young child um, and had done repertory theater and musicals and stuff. So I, I kind of went back to that initially and, and started doing theater again across the country and, and musicals and that sort of, um, you know, and then picking up different, you know, guests guest appearances on, you know, TV, film things, and then spent eight years behind the scenes with a theater company up in Canada writing and directing, and that's when all of that sort of started in just wanting to, you know, branch out. And I I feel like as things evolve in any business, you need to keep yourself current and relevant and reinventing yourself, whatever that takes. Um, And... You know, as an actor, especially as a female, you know, in the business, the older you get, the, you know, sometimes your your role options diminish and things that are maybe satisfying as an actor. So I felt like, you know, wanting to, wanting to have more control and maybe, you know, more options that, that satisfied my creative, you know, need that that, that sort of drove me in these other directions to, to get behind the scenes as well. So um, so now, besides acting, I still write, I direct, I sing, I, oh, wow. you know, have dabbled in producing. Um, you know, so I was able to combine all of those on this, this film that's about to release. Interesting. When you talk about theater, what was your so love of theater to jump on that after the Waltons? What would you say? Um... Well, I mean, part of it came from the fact that, you know, coming off the Waltons for, you know, nine seasons that, you know, I was so recognizable that in some cases with, with television, it, it sort of closed doors because, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're very typecast coming off of a series like that. And 
so I was getting, you know, my agents, we were hearing, well, we love her, but she's not right. And, oh, you know, geez. it's too, yeah. you know, too, it's kind of like you need to go away for a while and let people forget that you did the Waltons. Not that that has happened ever since then, but, you know, that door closed a bit at that time, but the door that it opened was in theater where they wanted where, you know, my name would draw in mm-hmm. an audience. Yes. So I went, okay, well, let me find where the doors are open. And that's kind of how I, I have tried to go forward and focus more at any given time on not the doors that are closed, but the ones that I can open. That's a, that's a great point. Again, we're talking to Judy Norton on the Neil Haley Show, and now we're going to discuss inclusion criteria. So you talked about how you like to be behind the scenes, behind the camera, behind you know, directing, doing different things like this. Tell us about this project, inclusion criteria, and your character. Uh, well, this was one that I wrote, and um, Josh, Josh Hodgins, um, my director, um, he and I had sort of started talking a couple of years ago about this concept I had, and he said, I love that. If you write it and star in it, I will direct it. So I said, okay, I will do that. So I wrote, literally wrote the film with myself in mind wow. to play the lead character, mm-hmm. Tara, um, who is... She's an artist. She's kind of an introverted loner, um, and she comes across a potential crime. That and after that, weird, unexplained phenomena start happening around her, and she becomes very concerned, um, terrified that she is either losing her mind, literally going insane as her as her mother did, or that she is being stalked and manipulated and something really scary is happening. And she doesn't know which it is, and she doesn't know which scenario is more frightening. Um, So it's it's a suspense thriller that... uh, with that whole sort of setting to take us through the story. And what did you think about, like, wanting to write this? What what, what gave you the mood to write a suspense uh, movie? Um, it was based off of something, I, I can't explain what or it'll give away the story, oh, yes. but okay. it was, uh, you know, something, some information like an article I'd read, you know, oh. and that I found very disturbing and the, the possibility of this scenario being real and happening um, was very concerning to me and I thought it made a really interesting, compelling, raised an interesting, compelling question that I thought would be very thought-provoking for an audience and hopefully would would initiate some conversation about this really disturbing potential scenario. and. So that was sort of the kernel of it, and it and it developed from there. Interesting, very good. And again, it's in theaters again, uh, April thirteenth, and also available on VOD after that. Isn't that correct, Judy? Yes, yes. We're um, releasing April thirteenth in in limited um, theatrical release, and right around the same time for people who won't be able to catch it in theaters. If it's not initially coming to your area, it's available through. You know, outlets like Amazon and Best Buy and Walmart for you know the DVD and for the on-demand, and then we'll be rolling out further from there. So, and the best place we can find information on all that, Judy, where can we go? Uh, well, my um, my website, JudyNorton.com. Um, I'll be keeping people updated. My on social media, I am a little behind the time, but I am on Facebook, and you can look for me with. 
Um, my profile has a picture of me as Mary Ellen with my little straw hat, sort of iconic. And then my uh, Twitter is the Judy Norton. And um, if you you know subscribe, follow on on either of those, then I will be keeping everybody updated as new outlets uh, come available for inclusion criteria. All right. Well, fantastic, Judy. Thanks for calling. And uh, thank you for that uh, education, letting us know about the Waltons and different things that are going on, especially I'm sure your fans are always interested in hearing what you're doing, Judy. So hopefully they all check out the film. So thanks again for calling. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. Bye-bye. We're back to Neil Haley's show in the Total Celebrity segment. And this is a really interesting story because we sometimes do not understand how adults or children that have been adopted, how they're able to deal with certain things, especially when they get older and they know they've been adopted. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Lisa Joyner, host of TLC's Long Lost Family. Lisa, thanks for calling. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. You know, when you think about that, it's really a hard thing because... Again, once you find out, hey, I'm adopted, there's a missing piece out there, right? And this is one th- reason why you're yeah. part of this. Tell us about that. Well, there is. It's it's a very interesting um, sort of group. A, a lot of people that I talk to who are adopted, I'll say, you know, when did you know you were adopted? What what did you feel like? And they're like, oh, I always knew. You know, I never really fit in. And, it, and it's kind of like, huh? But subconsciously, there is an abandonment issue. I mean, just from the get-go, you've been you've been separated from a biological parent, um, and and how you deal with it is different. And and you know, as adoptees, a lot of times we become super. Uh, we we put up a great facade. We we have a, a very steely, um, you know, outward appearance, but inside, you know. We're just like every other person who wants to be heard, who wants to be loved, and who wants to know their origin story. And for me, being an adoptee, that was, that was part of it. It's just like I knew from a certain age on what my life was, but I didn't know the backstory. You definitely didn't know the backstory, Lisa, and then that always gives that what if. It always gives that, hey, I'm missing something, as we talked about missing a piece of something. And so for our listeners out there that don't understand, under, un, know, Lisa was adopted. So this is why this project's such an important thing to you, isn't it? Being part of the show. It, it, yeah, it's, it's a passion project. There's nothing else on the planet that would take me away from my family than this show. It is an absolute privilege and honor to sit across from somebody and hold their hands and take them on this journey and be able to tell them we found the person that they've been looking for their entire life. Um, I'm not going to say it out loud, but you know, well, okay, it's amazing they pay me for this. It's it's really really an honor. Yes, yes. Um, I can I can also say to them I can also say to them. Listen, I know what you've been through. I, I get it. I get every emotion that you're going through. I know that you're scared. I know that you're fearful of abandonment. Um, so it makes it an incredibly intimate show. And 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 the crew that we have is so. You've never met a crew. I mean, you know, there's just sort of chiseled yes, yes. photographers who just sort of, you know, are sleeping behind the camera. No, these people are engaged. I mean, sometimes I hear the sound guy, he's crying. <laughs> it's just, it's such, a, it's such a real show and full of um, great meaning and thought behind it. And, and, you know, sadly, we don't always have happy endings, um, but oftentimes we do. Again, we're talking to Lisa Joyner 
a host of TLC's Long Lost Family on the Neil Haley Show. And Lisa, so the stories, how do you find the people that you're going and go and try to find their long lost relative? How do you, um, especially their adoptees, how do you go through this process of choosing what uh, person to choose to tell the story? It's, you know, it's a little bit, you know, it's like casting. I mean, it's for any show there's casting. You have to sort of throw out the net and say, hey, we're looking for people. We're searching for um, a a long-lost loved one. It is not only adoption, though. I have to tell you, we've done so many stories where, for example, um, uh, a sister and brother have been looking for um, their sperm donor, for one. You know, we had a fascinating story about that. Um, And they believe to have been... um, uh, from the same sperm donor, and so tracing that and going through the DNA to find them. Or, you know, a, a mother who disappeared just left, you know, a three- and a four-year-old with uh, their great-grandmother, and they never knew why. So it's it sort of covers all sort of aspects and adoptions as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's profoundly life-changing when we're able to give them some sort of closure, even if it's not the person that they wanted to find, um, we had one recently that he wanted to find out his racial background. He was struggling with his racial oh, identity wow. his whole life. On his birth certificate, wow. it said he was Caucasian, and he clearly was not. He was clearly of mixed race. Um, so being able to find the biological mother um, and find out his true ethnicity is, I mean, it's, it's life-changing. Now, Lisa, I'm asking a personal question, especially we've been going personal. Have Did you ever find out? who your parents were? Did you ever go through this process? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I did it about 15 years ago, and I thought I would do it myself because I'm a journalist. I can get this done. No. Um, So I I hired somebody, and they found my biological father, and he said, oh, I didn't even know she existed. Oh, gosh, yeah, I want to meet her. You know, and he lived... You know, I live in Los Angeles. He lived in San Diego, so it wasn't that far away. And then, and then the person, the searcher who found my biological mother was very skeptical. She was just like, no, I don't, you know, no, she's not, no, I don't know. And then finally she sort of broke her down and said, listen, if this is my daughter, what was her name at birth? And she said, Susan Michelle. And then my birth mother just started weeping, and she said, that's my baby. So oh I've, I've been there in the middle of that. I've met them. I, I know the feelings that these adoptees have gone through not knowing their origin story or their ethnicity, and I know what it's like to actually find that person. So it's, you know, it's super personal to me, but it's also something I really relate to. Well, it definitely seems like something, and for you to tell those stories, and especially when you're with the cast of people who the story is going to happen, you say, hey, guess what? I went through the same thing. And so this is why it's such an important (laughs) thing for you to be the host, because You've done this. You've been there, done this. You've dealt with the tear joking, now having another family again. And it's a challenge because what about the people who adopted the child? That's the other hard part of this, Lisa, is they chose to adopt and they chose to make that person their son or daughter. And then they see that they're going to search to find out the truth in certain ways. Is that hard? Think about that, Lisa. I think that's really a challenge for the parents that are the adoptee parents to see this process happen. Um, it's absolutely challenging. Um, and the wonderful part of that is that I identify with them as well because I chose adoption. I have an adopted daughter. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I talked to them and 
And I ask them all the time, I say, can I talk to your mom and dad? Can I talk to them? Because I want to let them know that what they're feeling is natural and is, is okay, but what they need to know is it has nothing to do with them. This is about an internal need for the adoptee to find out how it all started, why, when, who, all those basics. And I can talk to the uh, adoptive parents and say, listen, I know, I adopted a child. I am going through this as well. All right. Well, Lisa, again, people tune in on Sundays, right, at 10 p.m. Eastern on uh, TLC. Is that correct for the show? Yes, and it is, it's a great one. It's a really good show, and um, I, I hope that your viewers will, will tune in because I think they'll enjoy it. All right. Again, uh, thanks again for calling, Lisa. Uh, best of luck with your ventures. I appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, really, really an amazing story. Thanks for calling. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back the Neil Haley Show on the Author's Corner segment. And, oh, I'm excited about this guest because, again, he is really a music uh, genius in certain ways of the way he studied this and looked at this and has interviewed so many interesting people. So I'm excited to welcome the program music biographer Jake Brown, author of Beyond the Beats. Jake, thanks for calling. How are you? Oh, great, man. Appreciate you having me on. Let's talk about your background. You're award-winning in certain ways. You've, uh, you've done. How did you get started in this, and what was your reasoning for wanting to do it? <laughs> yeah, well, this is my 44th book in uh, in almost 19 years. Amazingly, oh, um, you know, I've been a musician all my life, and and uh, I just write kind of. You know, just luckily that kind of comes uh, along with it. And, and I, 20 years ago, a publicist asked me to write a. Uh, I was working at a label. And a publicist, like 21 in LA, Cleopatra Records, and a, a publicist asked me to write a sort of write a copy of something, you know, like for press copy, and they just made me their press person. I sort of kind of started meeting people that were looking for books, and I said, I'm not really wanting to kick it off with that, but I wrote a book on Suge Knight <laughs> from Death Row Records, and uh, that came out in 2001, and I then started kind of gravitating after some hip hop years toward rock. I uh, got lucky to write with, uh, co write with Hart, and Nancy Wilson, and Lenny wow. Kilmeister before he passed. Joseph Triani, Joseph Triani's memoir we did a few years ago, Kenny Aronoff, which is how I came up with the idea for this book. And, and the impetus for Beyond the Beats was I also write anthologies like National Songwriter, Behind the Boards, which is record producers. And there's never been a kind of comprehensive, this is the first book of its kind, probably I'm saying, to go in-depth with these guys and sit them you know, down the reader, down behind the kit, and right. figure out who put the first put the sticks in the drummer's hands. And like you mentioned, you know, you got... I mean, gosh, Lars Ulrich and Metallica, Joey Kramer, Veros, Tommy Lee and Motley Crue, Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters, if I may, just Chad Smith of the Chili uh, Peppers, Doug Cosmo, Clifford of Creedence Clearwater. That blew me away. Uh, Tico Torres, Torres of Bon Jovi, Matt Sorum of Guns N' Roses, Jimmy Chamberlain of Smashing Pumpkins, Kenny I mentioned, uh, Steve Perkins of Jane's Addiction, and Steve Smith of Journey. And the crazy thing is you could take those 12 bands and, I mean, think about who's still playing arenas and stadiums today and who's really rotated more than any other bands through classic rock and modern rock. And I mean, these guys have made beats that are just timelessly indelible. And, and, and uh, there's something for everyone in this book. If No matter stylistically, if you're a hard rock, you've got Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. If you're classic rock, you've got Creedence and Journey. you got Alternative. you got uh, Foo Fighters, Smashing Pumpkins, Jane's Addiction. So... It really does hopefully cover enough interest for someone, if some millennial, they can stream along and they can watch on YouTube the beats that they're listening to or how they were made or how they performed live. And then really the drummers, you know, took us everywhere, man. I mean, these guys talked about, you know, their childhood, who influenced them, how they kind of grew up. Uh, and, and made their way into the music business. And so it's a great educational slant, too, if you're an aspiring drummer. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's such a, a great point, uh, Jake. And so did you get to interview all these people for this book? Oh, yeah, firsthand. Yeah, Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. They, they, you, yeah, and yeah. that's got to be, I mean, this is unreal, the amount of superstars you got well, to. Tony Kramer was the yeah. fourth guy that signed on. Yeah, it, it is. It, some of the drummers that signed on blew me away, too, because then it's a reflection of how much there was a hole in that part of the study of, of rock. I mean, these guys, think about it. They keep the band going, keep the audience going. they got to be these acrobatic, amazing acrobatic, athletic performers in their 50s like they were in their 20s. Imagine Lars Ulrich pulling one off with the same energy from 10-year-old kid he's seeing him now as he did 30 years ago, or Tommy Lee, or, or any of these guys. You know, it's, it's incredible what they do. And were they all pretty uh, helpful? Did they like this idea of what you did, Jake, especially to look at a drummer in this way? Because everyone forgets the drummer, even though the drummer is such an important part of a band. Oh, it's, yeah, it's critical. I think what they thought was important was that there really hadn't been a definitive series that took you through the whole journey of being a drummer and educated as much as entertained in that sense. Because, you know, you get guys like Pico Torres that talk about Elvin Jones, legendary New York drummer that, that was his mentor. You talk, you get guys that talk about Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. Um, you know, it's another interesting thing. There's a huge influence of jazz that you wouldn't normally think within swing and feel. You also get a sort of a quasi tribute to John Bonham in this book because everybody salutes him in one form or another in their playing and a lot of them and what they talk about, you know. Oh, yeah, man. And Keith Moon, of course, another important guy. A lot of guys that have passed on that hopefully readers also get a little tip to maybe go check out their catalogs if they haven't heard the Who before, you know, consciously. You know what I mean? Or whatever the band is if they're a young kid. Um but yeah, man, it, it, you know, the, the, the crazy thing too, uh, you know, with guys like Joey Kramer, um, and, 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 uh, you know, talks about moments of fear. He talks about never being really comfortable doing a drum solo until 75 and Steven Tyler kind of kicked him in the rear to get out there and do one at a Texas, like, you know, stadium gig. And he's done them ever since. So Taylor Hawkins talks about us, you know, scared, being scared blankless, going out and play Wembley Stadium, you know, so they really give you their honest, uh, true kind of, you know, beyond the confidence, beyond the projection of strength you think a drummer puts out, they really do talk about the human side of it, you know, the, the pain that comes with playing. Tommy Lee talks about getting cortisone yeah. shots. Oh, you know, when you have to go yeah. in a roller coaster drum set at night, you know what I mean? So it, it really Oh, yeah. You just imagine, imagine Tommy how crazy his, his events are, and then th- some of these other drummers, especially in the heavy metal bands at that time, and how much they had to put their... Oh heart and soul into this so how kind of jake tell us one person not not an example but more what you're going to learn you're going to learn specifically how they became a drummer the study they had to deal with the amount of uh practice they need to do and also how they made it theatrical so that the performances would be unbelievable right am i on the right track of those things that you're talking about yeah sure do you want one example of that yeah yeah Oh boy, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm just chuckling because there's so many. Um, you know, I think a really, really poignant example of something like that would be um, Kenny Aronoff, just because uh, he, you know, started out. I mean, he grew up in the Berkshires and studied like you know under you know some amazing classical trainers and and um, you know played the timpani and and went to like you know uh, University of Indiana for their their kind of jazz program and. 
Uh, I, you know, he, he really, you know, was fired off Mellencamp's first record before American Fool and, and just went to the studio anyway and watched the session drummer and then sort of made his bones with Hurt So Good and Jack and Diane. He talks about in the, in the book, uh, both his book, uh, that we co-wrote together and then this one, you know, coming in at the last minute there to save Jack and Diane with that famous Lindrum, you know, fill that you hear that kind of yeah. reminiscent of in the air tonight. Uh, it, it, and I say him because he's, he's a mirror of a lot of these guys' stories. Uh, Steve Smith talks about taking Don't Stop Believing Home to work on at night, coming up with what's now those very famous, you know, uh, drum breakdowns and, and that throughout it. Uh, so it's just, you know, he's a great example, but all of these guys are journeymen, and none of them got an easy path. I mean, Matt Storm talks about sneaking out and going down and playing shows on the Sunset Strip and as a teenager, you know, um, and then doing four and five, you know, sets a night, swapping out with other journeyman drummers on his way to Guns N' Roses. So, I mean, there's there's some really cool stories about the the struggle. Tico Torres was a roofer by 14, and then he'd go play shows at night. So these guys are workaholics, you know. So, they just, yeah. they, they worked oh. as hard as they did. You know what I mean? So, Jake, it's basically what you're saying is you're telling you're giving a biography almost of their lives, a little bit of short little snippet, plus how they had to deal with it to get to make it, and also how much work it takes and what their strength and their and, talent and is. the inspiration yeah. behind all the beats they came right. up. Oh yeah, that's yeah. cut you off. Sorry, I think. Oh, that's awesome. It's, yeah, it's you get also the interactions with the bands in the studio. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of different things, Jake. So where are we? Where can we purchase the book and learn more about you, Jake? Where's the best place we can go? Oh, you can go to, I mean, I think for most, you know, Amazon has got it, uh, Barnes & Noble, books a million, kind of brick-and-mortar retail. The e-book comes out in May, and also the audio book, the Blackstone Audio, comes out on May 15th. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the other thing I would encourage anyone who, who has the ability, you know, at the time when they read this, put on the songs, man. Put on Spotify and or yes. whatever your chosen streaming medium or, how, you know, and listen along while you read about, like, Walk This Way or, you know, any of these beats you love, Hurt So Good or, you know, et cetera, um, because they're really cool. And, I, and I, I really beg these guys to get into some detail with me that, you know, uh, at one point Joey Kramer said, hey, hey Jake, man, enough about the songs, man. <laughs> like, wow. okay. So we talked about it 40 minutes about it. No, I mean it was a good thing. I I tortured him through twenty, you know, what about this one? But he, he then we talked for another forty five minutes about all these other great areas oh my gosh. playing and rocking and That's fantastic. And Joey Kramer could have told me to stop after two songs and I would have, you know, talked to him about whatever. But I mean he was gracious and went into, you know, a lot of the hits. You gotta figure for a guy like that he's remembering back forty five. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. So, Jake, how are you going to top this? How are you going to top this book now? What's what's your next project? Can you tell us? <laughs> volume two, and I'll tell you, volume two has the drummers from. It's amazing. The Clash, Iron Maiden, Stevie Ray Vaughan, <sighs> Double Trouble, Bad Company, Dream Theater. <sighs> You know, Carmen at Pieces in it, Steve Gadd's in it, MC5, Dino Vanelli of the Rascals, uh, John Lennon's drummer, Tower of Power, Leonard Skinner, White oh, Snake. It just goes on for 60s. Oh, oh, keep it up. Oh, my gosh. All right, Jake. Well, thanks for calling. Appreciate you coming on this show, and, and I can't wait to check out the book. Take care. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, okay. and we'll be back in... The Neil Haley Show, the Total Celebrity Segment, and I'm excited to welcome the program Anne-Marie Cummings of Conversations in L.A. Anne-Marie, thanks for calling. How are you? Thank, thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, again, with the, it still seems like winter, winter in Pittsburgh, so I'm sure you're not dealing with that in L.A. at all, and uh, we're expecting snow again, and this is April. Oh, so my God. I, I, it's a, 
it's it's not it's not the best but hey we just deal with uh excitement of uh you know just talking about different things but let's just jump really quickly to why you wanted to become an actor tell us that story especially when you started out in daytime i want to hear that story of how you got in the daytime uh work and stuff like that um well yeah no i um I was, I started acting when I was about six years old. I was a kid and I remember, I think my first inspiration was Meryl Streep. Um, so, so I just, Sophie's Choice, I think it was. But, you know, I was so impressed with her. And here I am, six, seven years old, and I'm, you know, watching Meryl Streep. And I was moved by the emotions. And um, just even at that age, I was, just always drawn to a sort of poeticness in actors like Meryl Streep and Al Pacino. Um, so I was, I started out with children's theater and then I, I ventured into my teen years. I started uh, just going out myself, taking myself out on auditions to, uh, while I was in high school, I was going out on auditions to uh, plays in the area. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I remember when I got Anne Frank, that was a big turning point for me. Um, I, another intense and emotional role, but I really dived into the story of Anne Frank. And I, I remember going to museums and reading books and her diary and looking at photos and feeling very close to that, that person. And I think that that's what yes. Meryl Streep was, was about, too. You know, she, you know, is an actress who is method, but also um, embodies a character. And so I, I started doing that at a very young age. And, um, and then I continued to stay after I, I went to Carnegie Mellon there in Pittsburgh. Oh, um, really? I, yes, I did. I went to the drama program, the, the conservatory four-year drama program there. And uh, after that, I ended up staying in the theater circuit, doing regional theater. And I worked with some of the, the, the best directors in the United States. I worked with uh, Doug Hughes, who was the direct out when it was on Broadway. Oh, wow. I worked with Ann Bogart, who really inspired mm-hmm. me with her viewpoints that, you know, because I, I ended up doing after I worked the circuit. All around the United States, different uh, regional theaters, I was doing some, I started to do my own work in Seattle, and I became more in the direction, and I started to direct a little bit too, and this is really in my late 20s, um, I, I really was inspired by Ann Bogart's viewpoints, so that I began to approach my work in a more abstract, avant-garde way. And okay. I've always done that, which is what I do with conversations in LA as well. So you know, my background, my background is the theater, and I've yeah. and I've even I, I had a theater in upstate New York before I moved here three years ago, and so what I decided to do because my theater in upstate New York moved from theater spaces into a movie theater. I started to move and really for the first time, I mean, in my late forties being interested in theater and uh, TV and film, 
and moving my work there. So what I started to do was I started to film my own plays and the plays of other people. And then I decided this is it. I got to move to Los Angeles. I need to be doing television and episodic work. But I yes. wanted to merge theater onto film to create this these one-shot takes, which is what Conversations in L.A., my oh, five-time wow. daytime Emmy-nominated series, is. Interesting. So the, and I want to learn more and more about that, Anne-Marie. So you basically, what I've seen is that the best actors out there start in the theater. Because when you are on, in the theater, your ability to monitor and adjust – your ability to, to take one take and get something is far different than other actors, isn't it? Because you guys really have to be prepared on the theater because if you mess up, everyone is watching. Compared to a television take, there's 20 takes, 100 takes sometimes. Right, right. It's very interesting, um, the process. Certainly, you know, we, obviously, for the theater, you have two, three weeks of rehearsing and then you're in, in front of an audience and you get used to, you just go no matter what. Once the curtain is, once every, the audience is there, the curtain rises, you go. Um, and you learn to work with whatever happens. And I feel like the style of this one-shot episodes certainly lends itself. If I'm working with theater actors, they, and many of the actors I work with on this series have that theater background. I have, okay. I think, nine nine people from Carnegie Mellon who are in this. Really? Um, oh, my God. Yeah. We, also, we have to bring out – I used to teach at St. Agnes School where we had a program with Carnegie Mellon Theater coming in to work with the kids. So probably oh, some wonderful. of those – who knows if they were there when I was teaching there, which, again, it's still eight or nine years ago. But the program, it's very interesting to see how amazing that Carnegie Mellon program is. Just have to tell you that they really do. And you got to be bright, too. Anne-Marie is bright. Yes. Trust me. It's Carnegie <laughs> Mellon. Yes. Yes, for sure. Well, you know, I think of, um, I mean, the reason I call Immediate Vision, my, my film production company, Immediate Vision Productions, is because it's about the vision. It's, it's about yes. what I'm, the, the uniqueness. Nobody is doing what I'm doing, these one-shot episodes. Yes. And, you know, the intro and the outro, they're montages, and they're always different, and they're cut with edits, usually two minutes on the front end and two minutes on the back end. But oh, wow. our episodes can go up to 20 minutes straight on. And I do like working with theater actors, but I don't mind working with straight-up TV and film actors, too. Um, you know, it's a challenge for them, but I, I think the ones that come on board, you know, sometimes they're used to just three pages and then it goes, okay, cut. Um, but ours, it's usually 12 pages and they have to sustain it. And, you know, we, we do a lot of takes. I do a lot of rehearsals. So it feels like a theater process for these actors. It feels like they're in a play and it's funny being out here, a lot of people will say to me, okay, wait, you can't have all these rehearsals. You can't. This is not what we do. And I'm like, well, you know, look, Terrence Malick has his style as a director. Every director has their own style and own method. Yeah. And my style and method is, look, these are one shots. Um, I think somebody was just telling me the other day, Stanley Kubrick does something like, what, it's like he, 100 takes. 
And, and I, you know, I can't even imagine that in one day, but for me, it is basically like a hundred takes, but I spread it out over two, two weeks or so. That's amazing. And again, we're talking to Anne-Marie, absolutely. We're talking to Anne-Marie Cummings of Conversations in LA. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about some of the uh, supporting cast you have and then your character in the story. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, my character is the protagonist, Michelle McAbee. She's an older woman. She's menopausal. She's very moody. She's going through a transition in her life. She's deciding that she's not happy with her job. This is season one, not happy with her job at Amazon for a decade that she's been doing that. Okay. And um, she meets this young Hispanic man. Um, she's mm-hmm. also lost her dog. And oh, my. she and this. So, you know, a lot of people that are in their 40s are going through a transition in their life. Yes. Um, the mid- midlife crisis is what we call it. Yes. <laughs> um, so she meets this young Hispanic guy, and they have what what is, the way I've written it, is a soul connection. It's not, it's not the typical older woman, younger man that's portrayed in TV and mm. film or even theater where it's based on some sort of just a physical uh, sex, right. sexual connection. It's really a deep connection to people who yes. meet and inspire each other and help each yes. other. And, you know, we ask ourselves many times, can this, something like this really work? Well, you know, I think it's individual and age is not what I think makes a relationship. It, no. If you really, you know, at least the story I'm telling is we see the struggle of these two people. And this continues through seasons one and two and all the people they meet along the way. And we see the people Michelle meets, oh, wow. we see the people that Gus meets and the journey that they're taking as a couple. Um, so in season one, I don't want to give out anything away, but you know, no, it is about no, their journey. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. this is a really exciting year. We have, um, Justin Kirk from weeds and, oh, wow. uh, Willie Garson from sex in the city that are coming on board in season two. We had Rebecca Metz who also went to Carnegie from better things and, um, uh, shameless. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's really been exciting. The, the people in each season, they come and go, but the main people, and, and sometimes they're recurring, but the main people are Gus and Michelle. Maybe their couple therapist stays great. the same, okay. you know, things like that. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a very important time for us. You know, I think that if you decide, like I am, I'm, you know, I sold my house in upstate New York. I decided to take a big risk and invest that, those funds into this project oh, and wow. make it happen so that we can move to um, a major platform like HBO or Netflix. And okay. this year we have uh, Mogul Studios, our producing partner, so, on board. Yeah. So that's exciting, too. How can you get to that next level? That's a great point to make what your strategy is next, to try to get to one of those area, those places, either HBO or Netflix. How's well, you know, it's been, it, you know, and people have asked me this many times, and I, I think that it's individual. It's every show has its own path. And the last thing in the world I thought when I began this project, which was really just, 
so I could, I was just writing scenes and it turned into, I realized, oh my God, I have a series. I should just go for it. You know, it was the fact that we got the first year in 2017 that we got, uh, I received a daytime Emmy nomination for Outstanding Actress and then my co-star for Outstanding Lead Actor um, and then Vanita for supporting Vanita Harbour. We, we, that inspired us and we said, wait a minute, we got to keep going. Um, so that, that pushed us to take it from just our website, conversationsinla.com, to let's put it up on iTunes and Amazon. Now, let's okay. just do a second season. So we've taken big risks, and I think that for anyone out there who is working on a series or a show, um, sometimes you just do the pilot and try and sell that way. But yeah. we're going all the way. So now we have received two more Daytime Emmy nominations, um, one for writing for myself and Mikey Winfield, the guest actor. And now we're like, oh, my God, now we're even more inspired. So this is when we, um, by the end of season two, I decided, okay, I've got to reach out to get some partners involved. And, And our producing partner is Mogul Studios, and they are... Uh, a Fortune 100 company run by the CEO is Tiffany Pham. And this is their first project under the name Mogul Studios. So this is a, a really, really exciting time because now with their help and support, we believe we can take it to that next level. It takes time. Absolutely. I mean, no, but, but yeah, these, you have the passion, yeah. Marie, and that's the thing. And with these nominations, leads to credibility, leads to rep uh, people, and then someone's going to pick you up. There's so many other streaming services out there now. You never know where you take it that you won't even need to have to go to those platforms. But having those goals in mind for your show and continuing to grow it and invest in it is the best possible situation. And when it's time, it will happen. That's my take. Right. Right. No, and I think that you know, it's one of these things uh, when you watch, when we watch TV shows that are out there, um, yes, I think some get picked up right from a pilot, but some have a long life that we don't even know about maybe for a few years before. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that maybe Mad Men um, and even um, Breaking Bad, you know, they had, they had you know, it took, it took several years before the, those shows actually made it. Um, so, you know, I mean, we have, there are a lot of things about this that are unique. Um, I also really wanted to give a, to give one of the leads uh, to have him be a Hispanic and my co-star being a Hispanic, we don't necessarily recognize in the entertainment world. I don't think we give enough to uh, the Hispanic community, but, here in LA, I think you, you know this is predominantly a Hispanic uh, community, um, so it's it's exciting to see that as well. I mean, Gustavo Velasquez is an unknown, and this is his first big project, but he is an amazing talent, and he um, kind of think of him like a young Benjamin Bratt, but he's just incredible, and sometimes unknowns make history. So I'm excited about the direction of this. I hope this is also helping anyone out there who is working on a show. You know, it's about persistence. It's about perseverance. It's about, it seems like that's what you do. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited yeah. for you, especially Carnegie Mellon. Thank you. So we have to stay in touch. We got to stay connected to different things and different things. And I want to, because here's the thing. I started out my career at Carnegie Mellon with the radio show. I didn't go to Carnegie Mellon. I started on one station. I'm still on it, WRCT for an education show. And I've syndicated 120 plus stations, have television, have all these pickups and, and huge, uh, huge uh, uh, reach. So it's really amazing, it's amazing to think about that our connection with Carnegie 